0: morning church. I'm Leanne and I get to read the scripture today. Um, there's two scriptures and the first is Matthew five, forty-three through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. 49 and 50. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you.
1: Thank you, Leanne, and good morning to you. If you have and I haven't met yet, I'm Robin. I'm so glad you're here today. We are in a series called Restoring What's Broken, and we're looking at these two unknown. Um, or relatively unknown scripture, uh, Old Testament books called Ezra and Nehemiah. And um, before we get into Ezra and Nehemiah, just as Leanne finished those two verses, a question for you. Jesus said, Do not stop him or her, for whoever is not against you is for you. So, Somewhere along the way, when I was growing up, that question was said to me as whoever is not for you is against you. How do you hear it? Are you someone who believes that whoever is not against you is for you? Or do you believe that whoever is not for you is against you? I think it matters. I think it matters a great deal. And maybe it matters because, you know, I had a best friend who turned into like a mortal enemy of mine. And so instead of having this generous view of people being for me, I started to worry and wonder about who was going to betray me. And I, I've told this story before, but I think it fits here that uh, one day, years and years later, I didn't realize how much I thought people were against me until my kids were like, Dad. Why do you eat like this over your food? Well, what do you mean? Well, are you worried we're going to take it? Actually, I am. I am worried you're going to take it because somewhere along the way, people started taking my food and I was not big enough or strong enough to protect my food. And so I started taking this attitude of whoever is not obviously not taking my food is going to take my food. Similar, but... We have these two stories, these stories from Ezra and Nehemiah, that tell of a very real account of a faith filled people who are passionately trying to follow God. They want to see themselves, God, and each other in a new way, and they've moved into a new place. They're returning to this promised land. However, many of the people who are coming back never actually lived there, they were born in in captivity, in exile, in a foreign place. And so they're returning to a place that's unfamiliar. They're, they're not rebuilding old homes, unless it's their parents' or their grandparents' home. They're rebuilding a new home. They're rebuilding a new life. They're rebuilding a new temple because theirs was destroyed. And they're learning how to relate to God in a new way. They're re-learning how, learning how to relate to each other in a new way. For 70 years, they were never allowed to worship in the way that they knew how to worship. They were never allowed to sacrifice in the way that they knew how to sacrifice. They were never allowed to practice their faith in ways that they had practiced before. They had to actually learn how to relate to their enemies in a new way as well. As they come back to their land they're again having to figure out, how do I see my enemies? How do I see the people around me? And so that's where I think that God's word and prayerfully God's spirit will take us today is how do we see God, each other, and even our enemies when we're in a place that feels like it's new or when we're in a place of rebuilding? In addition to the two uh, scriptures that Leanne read, I have one for you. It's from Ezra chapter 4. And this is verses 1 through 5. Ezra 4, verses 1 through 5. Ezra 4 says, that when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the leaders of the families and said, let us help you build because we, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the days of esar the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple for our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans all during the reigns of King Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then it talks about later opposition and verse 24 summarizes, thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So let's do an all play here. Uh, an all play is where I ask a ret- non rhetorical question and you can answer. Anybody can answer because the sounds of the symphony are much fuller than the sounds of the solo. So here's the question How do you know if someone's your enemy? How do you know if someone's your enemy? I'm here all day. They harm you. All right. They don't think anything good of you. They tell you. They're the ones shooting at you. Ooh, there are people who prevent you from being all that God wants you to be. I want to pull on that thread. <laughs> Anybody else? I think it's a decision you make. What? Say more about that. Well, I need to decide if you get. Sometimes you get to decide if someone's your enemy. You want to say more? <laughs> Anybody want to add on to that thought? A lot of times you don't know based on you or them, okay? Sometimes they're sneaky. Mm -hmm. It's easy to hide. The enemy can mask that from you. Sometimes a lack of information makes us assume that the other person might be an enemy. I think those are all really good. Any others? The enemy has a name, and that is our enemy, so the one. The enemy has a, so I wanna I don't wanna put words in your mouth. I mean the enemy is Satan, that is our enemy. So we have one enemy. So a lot of times we will think that there are other enemies when there's really only one enemy. Well, I think those are all really, really good. I I actually don't necessarily have anything to add to it. What I see in the scripture is the only way that we know that these people are enemies is because the narrator says the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. Otherwise... We've been given no information before this or after this that say that these people have done something or acted or thought in a certain way that we can read that says they're an enemy. Now, there are times where um, in the Hebrew language that it's, the Hebrew language is a, a pretty compact language and so there's oftentimes a Hebrew word will have two, three, four, even five different meanings for it. And you have to really read and study the context, see where else the word is used before to decide how that word might be being used. But then there's other times where one word has is actually a multiple of meanings in English, like enemy. So enemy in in Hebrew is also, or enemy in Hebrew is written or said as ayev, I think that's how you say it, ayev, and that word is a foe who hates or is openly hostile towards you. I think many of the definitions that we just gave fit that. I also think that those enemies are pretty easy to spot. You can just give me a head nod, you know. You don't have to throw any amens out unless you want to. But those are enemies that are easy to spot. However, enemy is also translated uh, seer. And seer is this word which means an adversary or one who offers opposition, causes distress, or makes us feel narrow. Seer is... The root word of Egypt, which also means narrow, it's a narrow place because there's a lack of water beyond the Nile River, so there's death on either side. It's also a place in the ancient world, it was the most powerful place that, never, that didn't acknowledge one true God above all other gods that only worship these other false gods, so that's a narrow place. And so this narrowing means, I think a little bit like Krista said, of someone who makes us feel like we can't be all that God has created us to be. We feel tight or we feel narrow. They may not even be openly hostile to us. Well, sar kind of enemies, I think those are harder to identify. And maybe, like was said a few times, It depends on how we respond to them. So here we have a situation where some returners are going in and they're rebuilding, and they've been given orders by the most powerful person on the planet at the time, this king of Persia, to say, hey, you can actually ask your neighbors for anything you need, and by order of the king, it will be done. So people had to do that. And so they bring all these supplies back to their place that is their homeland that has been occupied by other locals for the last couple hundred years. And so they come and they say, we want to help build. And the leaders have to decide. And now this is total conjecture. Like, are are you making a sincere request to help us rebuild? Or is this like some veiled attempt at thwarting us? Are you just disguising this decision to help and really, really, you just want to hinder the work? Or does it depend on how we see them? Because I bet you have some people in your life that sort of just rub you the wrong way. You know, they have a personality that, you know, might go against you, or they say things that, you know, just you get a rise. It's almost like when they start talking, no matter what they're going to ask, what they're going to say, it's like, I don't even want to hear it. This aggressiveness comes up in you. You know, again, just a head nod is okay because I'll, I'll change it if I'm like, you are smoking something that we have. No-. Sorry. So yes, a little bit. All right. Now, I'm guessing you also have some people who, because of past actions, sincere, insincere, Whatever, they just have repeated things that you believe some stuff about them that no matter really what they do, you believe that they're going to do that other thing. Well, you've always been sarcastic. You'll always be sarcastic. So even if you say something that's not sarcastic, I'm going to take it as sarcasm. Or you do it this way. You've always done it this way. So even if you don't do it this way, I'm still going to see it as that. And that's when you're believing what Jesus did not say. That whoever is not for you must be against you. See, the enemies come and they say, We are seeking your God. We've been sacrificing. And the enemies, or then God's people, Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, the rest of the heads of the family, the people who are influencers, they say, You can't play. You don't get part of this. You don't get to rebuild God's house we're going to do this. Now maybe it's because, you know, these people were imported from other places from the east and the middle east from the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires and then when the Persian empire came into power, they're like you can go back to your places. Maybe they were mad about that or maybe it's because they knew their history and in 2nd Kings 17 when you look up this King Esarhaddon, you find out that this king brought people from Babylon, from Cuthah, from Ava, from Hamath, from Sepharvarim, and they settled them in the towns of Samaria. Samaria wasn't a bad place, it was actually where the other ten tribes of Israel were located. They were God's people too, but they were replaced and they took over these towns. And in verse 33 it says, They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods and according to their customs of the nations from which they'd been brought. So you might see that and go, see, 2 Kings 17, that says they're enemies because they just, they don't worship the one true God. Well, yeah, they do. Well, they also worship these other gods, so they must be enemies. They didn't look like us, they don't talk like us, so they must be against us. So are they for them or against them? They had the worship of the one true God, they just also had these other gods too. And I know there are stories of people um, from around the world and in this church who came to know Jesus and bam, they were delivered of whatever their false god was, whatever their anxiety was, whatever their sin was, they have a new life. Uh, Talk to Leanne, she has a story of like total deliverance of something that struggle, struggle, boom, gone. So I know it happens. But I also know that for a lot of people, myself included, a lot of people in the church and around the world, that when you come to know Jesus Christ and turn to faith in him, it's this long, windy journey of give and take, of turning things over that you realize are false gods, of handing it over for him to be king. Because we all have lots of little gods Idols that we think give us power or control or make us uh, significant. And so, yes, we can clearly see that these people are enemies when they, verses 4 and 5, when they discourage the people from building, they make them afraid to keep going, they bribe officials, they frustrate their plans. I'm sure we all have people that don't play by the rules. But what I want you to see is that These people do this after the leaders, God's people, say, no soup for you, to take, you know, Seinfeld reference if, you know, you like it. Probably my only episode, but my favorite. You can't play. You don't, no part in this. So we alone will build it. Because I think the question that it comes down to for, for them and for us today is this. What do we say to the people who say they seek our God and they want to join in God's work? Do we include them or do we exclude them? Especially when they want to help build God's place and presence in the world. And yes, they might still have other gods in their lives. Because how we see them or how we how we see how they see themselves as outsiders sorry let me try that again cuz it comes down to this question especially if how those people who either we see as outsiders or who see themselves as outsiders How will they ever come to know Jesus Christ if we never let them participate, if we never let them experience what it's like to be in God's presence or to build and do his work? God is present wherever his people are gathered. That's God's house. They are building, yes, they are building an external temple, but when Jesus comes, He says, I will tear down this temple and I will raise it back up. And he's talking about his body. And when his spirit comes, his body becomes part of our body. And so wherever two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus says, I am there with them. God's presence, God's house is us. So, and yes, God is concerned about holiness and is concerned about purity. But that's why he sent Jesus Christ to make a way for us in holiness, and in purity. But it was never to exclude. The prophet Isaiah even said 300 years before God's people are put into exile that they would return from a second exodus. The first time they had an exodus was when they left Egypt. The second time they have an exodus is when they leave this place of exile, when they leave their captivity in Babylon, in Assyria, and they come back to their land. But Isaiah says that there will be a time where others, outsiders, will join them in God's house as part of his family, his community. First in Isaiah 14, it says, The Lord will have compassion on Jacob once again. He will choose Israel and he will settle them in his own land and foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. He goes on and says it further in Isaiah 56 verses six through eight. He says, Foreigners who bind themselves or who come to the Lord, who minister to him, who love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold his covenant, hold fast to his covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign lord declares, "He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will still, I will gather still others besides them already gathered." Clearly saying the outsider has a place in God's family. God is calling them to his commandments and to his covenant, but he is calling them and he is inviting them. God's dream for restoring humanity was never about being this exclusive club of elite insiders. It's always been about building a house that would be big enough to include humans of every tribe, every country, every language, every socioeconomic status, every race, every gender. Jesus was always inviting and including people that made the religious insiders Uncomfortable. Now, he called those who were closest to him and those who were farthest from him to a higher standard, a higher view of God, and a broader mission in the world. So, how can you and I do that? How can we include more outsiders in God's work? And if you feel like you're an outsider, how can you see that these insiders really aren't so weird? What I see from these texts, from Matthew 5 and Luke 9 and Ezra 4, is this call to widen our perspective. Jesus did say, whoever is not against you is for you. So if you're in high school, you have an opportunity to actually experience this. Um, Our Aiden, our interim students director, is teaming up with our group of churches in the region known as the Northwest Conference to an event called MOVE, because For some reason, the covenant loves acronyms. So mission, outreach, venture, and experiences move. It's this two-day experience of learning and serving and experience different and diverse environments of how to recognize and fulfill a need in places that might feel different than them. And you have, if you're in high school, you have about three weeks to sign up for that. You can talk to Aiden if you have questions. But it's a really cool experience and opportunity. But we're not all in high school, so what can we do? Well... You can start by believing the best about a person. Have you ever tried that? Instead of assuming the worst, believe the best. You can check assumptions that you might have and say, maybe they're not true. And you can be a person that seeks experiences that stretch you, that put you in places where the people or the environment just is different than what you're used to. You could serve at a homeless shelter if you've never done that before. You could go on a mission trip if you've never done that before. You could perform acts of love to a crazy or crabby neighbor. It really does work. Or like we learned in uh, Bless this fall of how to bless others, you could listen to someone else's story. Now, um, my friend Rebecca has this friend. It's okay to say this? Yeah, okay, just checking. Who's Buddhist and dear friend, been a friend forever? This friend is the most interested listener when Rebecca is telling her about what she is learning about God. It makes her want to reciprocate and listen to what this person is learning. They may not agree, but the interest she shows says this person's seeking God. They might have other gods too, but God can work that out. He's a big God. He worked it out for me. I know he's worked it out for some of you. So that, those ideas all work to widen our perspective, even though they don't necessarily include the outsiders. But they do help us to work on seeing people. And Jesus says that is very important. So once we start seeing people, though, especially people we consider outsiders, it's really easy to focus on what they do wrong or what they think is wrong, or how it disagrees with us. So I think one of the things that Jesus is challenging us is to point out our own faults before we ever point out someone else's fault. Now here's where I get this. So in Luke 9, Jesus says, um, the disciples come and say, Jesus, someone is driving out demons in your name and they're not part of our group. So we told them to stop. And he says, don't do that. Whoever is not against you is for you. Now, driving out demons in Jesus' name is a good thing. And what's happened just before this, here's the irony. This is why Luke is one of my favorite writers in all of the Bible. Because what Luke has done right before this is Jesus went up on a mountain with three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. They're up there for a night. This amazing thing happens. They come down and there's a crowd gathered with the other nine disciples. And what the other nine disciples We're doing is some guy had come up with his demon possessed boy and said, as soon as Jesus comes down, he says, Jesus, will you heal him? Because I took him to your disciples who tried to drive the demons out in your name and they couldn't do it. And so Jesus does. Then the disciples start arguing about who's the greatest. Can you just picture I got to be up on the mountain with Jesus? We had this super cool vision. It was unbelievable. Well, we were we were monitoring the crowds, and you know, I know that guy said that we couldn't drive out the demons, but we've driven out other demons, and you know, Thomas is remembering more Bible verses than Peter's remembering, so I, I'm just saying that there was some argument. So when the disciples see someone else driving out demons successfully, they feel narrow. They feel like they're in competition. Because if someone moves up, then I must have to move down. Because it couldn't be that we're all God's favorites. Because if we're all special, then no one's special. So of course they tell that person to stop. See, if someone else is doing something that I want to do, or that I wasn't able to do, then, then all of a sudden... I'm going to feel narrow. I'm going to feel tight. I'm going to feel it's going to cause stress. I'm going to think they're opposing me. And then I'm going to think that they must be the enemy and I have to eliminate the competition. Instead of seeing them as someone who's on Jesus' team, someone who can maybe help me get better, because Jesus said, whoever is not against you, they must be for you. And when you believe that God is for you, or for us, then Jesus says, well, then who can be against us? Why all the needless fighting and competition and pointing out people who are enemies when really they may not be? See, and if we look at where, if we point out our own faults first, it makes us see where we need God's grace. And I think when we see where we need God's grace, it helps us to show God's grace to someone else. And I think the last way that we can include more outsiders in God's work is to find what's common and to be like Christ. This idea of finding what's common comes from what Jesus says about loving our enemies. He's given this list of things of saying, you know, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that reality, Retaliation is the justice of the day, but, but I tell you, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, churn your other cheek, and if they want to sue you and take your shirt, then you should just hand over your coat as well. Or if someone forces you to walk one mile, then just walk two with them. And it's not about allowing abuse. It is not about allowing abuse, but is about rising above retaliation, about being slow to anger and quick to forgive slow to anger, and quick to forgive. It's about going on that second mile to possibly understand what that person's journey has been like. I think Jesus was talking about all these ways that people hurt us as a way to reframe how we see our enemies, that maybe they're not our enemies. And when we do that, Jesus says when we love our enemies and when we pray for those who persecute us, then we're being like, children of our Father in Heaven. We're acting like God's family. See, I think one of the biggest reasons that Christians prefer walls and clubs is because it's easier to separate ourselves than to do the hard and difficult work of loving people that are different than us. And not just loving people that are different than us, but walking alongside of them and living different than them. But that's what he calls us to, to love people the way he loved people, to include people the way he included to, and to live right with God the way that Jesus did. But that's when we're acting like God's family. And see, this whole idea of returning to the promised land got, it goes all the way back through the scripture. It goes all the way back through the Israelites before they went to Egypt. It goes all the way back through Abraham. It actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When we live in the promised land or when we turn to the promised land, it's about living in this sacred space. About believing and seeing God's protection and his provision and his presence. And believing that that is enough for us to live at peace with him, with each other, and even with our enemies. and we can show the joy of living in God's presence. Just ask God's spirit right now, where are you feeling excluded? And where are you excluding others? I truly believe that God can do this work in us. Um, I know Someone that I know that you probably don't know is going to come up on the screen. And um, and this person um, lives in a town that has a lot of Somali people. And she grew up in a place that had very few people that were different than her. And so when she moved there, she would tell me things like, well, I don't, I don't know if I want to send my kids to to the public school because those Somalis, they just took it over. I'm like, um, that's a really prejudiced and kind of narrow way to think about that. Well, I just, I'm just saying, you know, it's it, I'm just saying. So this goes on for a few years. And she decides... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help build a community playground. I'm going to rally all kinds of people and businesses and schools and churches. We're going to build this thing. They raised almost a million dollars. They built it in less than two months. But why? If you know me, you know this happens every once in a while. And the band's going to come up and we're going to sing and we're almost done, but band, you can come up if you want because who knows how long it'll take. <laughs> but why I'm showing you this picture is because when, when this started, the woman on the left said things like those Somalis. Somalis. A week into this, she said, There's this lady that's been coming who's Somalian every day, this first seven days. Wow. The next week, she said, You know, um, this Somali lady, Handi, has been coming every day. She's only missed once in, in three weeks. With just a week left of the build, she says, you know, my friend, honey, and I are going to have coffee after we volunteer today. Not her enemy. Not someone who opposes her. Someone who is different. Someone who, who might have another God. But someone who our God desperately loves. Actually, I would say both women our God desperately loves. And if that can happen in a small town with just a little bit of Jesus, imagine what it can happen when you and I surrender our lives to Christ and all our little gods and say, how can we include someone to build in God's family that is seeking our God? It's not easy work, but it is the work of the promised land. Jesus says, this will be a house of prayer for all nations. So who are we to bar the doors? Holy Spirit, I thank you for letting me get through that story. And I pray that, uh, that those wouldn't be wasted tears. That you would speak into our lives in a loud way about where we've been excluded and you would, you would speak a new story into that. That we wouldn't live as excluded people. That we would be people that would sense your presence and your protection and your provision. And it would be enough that, that we would be in and inviting others in. And for those of us who, who really would say we're insiders, That you would speak to us about the outsiders in our lives that, that we need to reach out to. Maybe it's just starting with inviting them to feed my starving children. To serve alongside us in a good work. Maybe it's about opening more of our lives to someone that we don't know well or we might disagree with. But I pray that you, God, would speak into that and that we would
0: live changed. In Jesus' name, amen.